This is the Clinical Takeaway podcast from HealthEd, where we interview leading medical experts on important topics that can positively change the way you practice. Here's your host, GP and medical educator, Dr. David Lim. HealthEd's face-to-face seminars are starting up again in 2022. And we hope that you will be able to join us for a day of high quality learning with a lineup of great speakers and important topics in women's and children's health. I'll be chairing a number of these events and I look forward to seeing you there. Register at healthad.com.au. Have you been treating your patient's depression, hoping that improvement of the mood will also improve the sleep disorder? Dr. Chris Blackwell makes a very clear and strong point that we may have this the wrong way around. Treating the sleep disorder up front is at least as important as treating the depression and certainly makes treating the depression easier. Find out more. Dr. Blackwell, tell us about yourself. I'm a consultant psychiatrist. I'm just a general consultant psychiatrist. I see all sorts of patients. I have work in private practice and I have the good fortune to work at the Walcott Clinic, um, which is in Glebe in Sydney, where they see people with sleep and respiratory disorders. And I've had a long-standing interest in sleep and sleep disorders, um, stretching right back to when I was a medical student. Um, however, I've gone off and trained in psychiatry, which was the most unusual thing for anybody who was interested in sleep disorders. There aren't a lot of psychiatrists who are directly interested in sleep disorders, but hopefully we're slowly recruiting more. You know, most general practitioners, when they're referring to a psychiatrist, would hope that they have some understanding of sleep disorders. And I hope so too, because I'm one of the doctors that actually educates psychiatrists in in sleep. Now, Chris, I hear the emphasis on both sleep and mood disorders, and I believe there's a strong convergence of these both and that they are important to recognise. How common is it for sleep disorders and depression to coexist? Look, I think we've got that round the wrong way. I think it's how rare it is for people with depression not to have a sleep disorder. I think that's actually sleep disorders and depression are normal. That isn't the sleep disorder is a normal thing, but that depression usually encompasses sleep disorders. And in fact, the evidence is that more than 90% of people who are given the diagnosis of major depression have an identifiable sleep disorder. Almost all of them have initial insomnia. And people with melancholic symptoms, their depression, this is the so-called more endogenous, in the old days, the term we would use would be endogenous depression. People with a more biologically strong depression have early morning waking, which is one of those symptoms that you need to always be listening for when you're trying to examine someone with depression. As far as there are sleep disorders that are not associated directly with depression, but even in the group of people who have primary sleep disorders like narcolepsy, there's a much higher incidence of those people who develop quite severe depressive illnesses and certainly problems with anxiety as well as part of their presentation. There are also, I'm sure, people out there who've got narcolepsy who've been misdiagnosed as people with depression because the two symptom uh, the two symptom clusters overlap so much. So if you're thinking about depression, 
you just assume the person has a sleep disorder. And the question is, which sleep disorders do they have and which ones uh, can we reasonably treat? Because we know that treating sleep disorders in depression improves the outcome both and improves the general quality of life for the patients involved. It's also a straightforward thing to do. And when you're talking about treating depression at the general practice level, you've got this wonderful opportunity. I mean, look, I'm always in awe of general practitioners. You guys have to see people that are unsorted. I get patients that are pre-sorted. By the time they get to my door, they've at least, they've almost all had some blood tests. They've almost all been processed. We know to a large extent what their medical problems and medical problems obviously affect people's sleep as well. And the treatment of medical problems also affects people's sleep. And that all gets incorporated into the problems with depression and sleep. You, we were talking earlier um, off recording about alcohol, alcohol and substance abuse as people self-medicating and people simply abusing substances, not only affects people developing depression, but also dramatically affects the ability to get people to respond to treatment. So part of the problem you're seeing increased risk of alcohol with people isolated and miserable in the current situation with COVID is that they are also less likely to respond to antidepressant treatment, both medication and behavioural modification. They're less likely to do it and they're less likely to get an effect from their antidepressants. And seeing that, if you like, you can just assume that every patient with a mood disorder, particularly depression, has a sleep disorder. And you said that it's important to know which one they have. So, and by knowing which one they have, you know which one can be treated. And that it's important to treat because they have better outcomes and improved quality of life. My question is, how do we as a GP, really nail which sleep disorders. I mean, I, I know of two, uh, you know, sleep initiation, insomnia and, and the early awakening. Are there others we should be aware of? Look, I think there are a large variety of sleep problems that present. It's, it's all always going to come back to taking a good history. You're going to ask questions about, do they have trouble getting off to sleep? Exactly how many hours do they sleep a night? When do they go to bed? what time what time do they wake up do they wake up through the night do they wake up restless do they wake do they find that the bedclothes are all turned up in the morning do they wake up having felt that they haven't had sleep those sorts of symptoms are normal in people with depression they're also normal in people with um, chronic sleep deprivation people you know become are much more likely to become depressed if they're chronically sleep deprived they're much more likely to have increased other health problems if you're chronically sleep deprived or you're working shift work. So part of your history taking is going to be looking for sleep-wake schedule disorders, people who are not getting enough sleep, people who are whose sleep is disrupted or delayed, and, and you've got to look at different uh, changes in terms of people's sleep phase. You also need to be aware of it makes a difference which age group you're in. Young people in particular have normal delayed sleep phase. We're getting on, but we can all remember, and we may have seen it with our kids, young people presenting, they're staying up late into the evening. Mm. Some of that is physiological. It's only when it becomes um, exaggerated that we start to worry about it. You know, normally people in the sort of late adolescence and early adulthood 
would actually want to stay up later. I think we can all remember a time when we were younger when the party started after 10 o'clock at night and people would be staying up to two and not things. And I think that moment when you suddenly realise you're middle-aged is when you think, oh, gee, I'd just like to get home by midnight. Uh, Otherwise, I'm going to turn into a pumpkin. Um, (laughs) And you you need to recognise what's normal in terms of recognising sleep sleep differences. Adolescents do stay up later. But, of course, you can have problems with adolescents developing depression where they're not getting enough sleep or they're going to bed very late, but they're sleeping through the day. There are some people who are developing quite severe mental illnesses who turn day into night and night into day. And that sleep-wake inversion is often indicative of somebody developing either a severe major depressive disorder or it may portend even more serious psychiatric illnesses like schizophrenia. So you have to watch it very carefully if people are doing that, what's going on. But it also has a social impact. If you're asleep all day and awake all night, you're often leading a fairly isolated existence. Of course, there are some people who who would turn that into a wonderful social life, but they're probably not people who are presenting with depression. They're saying, to get something to sleep because on occasion I need to resynchronize with everybody else. So you need to recognize in terms of sleep disorders, is this person simply desynchronous? Are they just out of step with everybody around them? And trying to conform is part of the problem with their sleep disorder. That may trigger depression, but it's much commoner to see people with depression who are having trouble getting off to sleep because they are worrying, because they cannot let go of what's going on during their day. And they're staying up and you know their circulating cortisol levels remain high they, they don't dip through the night as they cool down and they wake up feeling, haven't had their cortisol surge first thing in the morning and they wake up not feeling like they've had a decent night's sleep. And then the day grinds on and as the day goes on and as they get more severely depressed, they get a little bit better as the day proceeds. This is diurnal mood variation, which we see in severe depression and melancholic depression. And they improve as the day goes on and quite often you'll have people and you see this in the bipolar population in particular where they'll keep staying up later and later because they realize that their mood improves as the day goes on and then once they've had a sleep their mood tumbles back down again and they wake up feeling terrible and they'll self-medicate if you like by staying awake the moment we talk about self-medication you also talk about people drinking to get to sleep and this is a really poor strategy because not only does it affect the architecture of your sleep, so you don't get quality sleep when you're drinking, not only does the hangover the next morning affect your ability to function and certainly impact upon your mood, not only does the alcohol counter the effect of the antidepressants that you might be trying to treat people with, but when they don't have the alcohol, they're also uh, complicated by um, alcohol withdrawal three or four days later. And so then they can't sleep because they're agitated because they're having trouble associated with drug withdrawal or alcohol withdrawal in this situation. So all of those things affect people's developing depression, affect people also responding to treatment for depression. So it's an important interaction. Now, Chris, um, depression clearly is a a common condition that GPC, and now we realise that sleep disorder is very common to those with depression. And we are beginning, say, in the history to understand, yep, my patient has a sleep disorder and depression. Just talk me through how I can prioritise when a problem can be 
manage by myself and how I can do that? When do I start getting worried? And when should I need to refer urgently? I think that there are, there are three really separate questions embedded in that. The first thing that I'm going to sit here as a psychiatrist in awe of GPs. As I said before, you guys see so much and you have to be sensitive to so many different things. And let's be blunt. Most people who have milder depressive illnesses who see their GP are treated well by their GPs. GPs provide, you know, first thing, engagement. Somebody who is actually listening sensible lifestyle advice and we know these things help depression we know that getting people out first thing in the morning improves you know with daylight improves your sleep wake cycle because it helps reinforce that circadian rhythm and getting people to exercise in the morning we know that this helps people's mood so general health advice and managing their other medical conditions and screening for obstructive sleep apnea and screening for other metabolic disorders in particular, if you worry about depression, things like thyroid or low irons or those sorts of things, GPs do a fantastic job of that. So what do we do then? You've given them the general advice, you've engaged this person, you've given them an opportunity to ventilate. It's going to become very clear to you very quickly if what this person needs to do is talk and you don't have time for that, then you're going to think, okay, am I going to on-refer this? And in, in recent years with the better access programs and Medicare availability, there's an army of psychologists out there who do both general um, supportive work and a lot of focused therapies, which I don't think are easy to implement normally in general practice because you don't have the time in the consultation. So those sort of non-drug treatments are your first line in terms of treating depression. They're also your first line in treating um, problems with insomnia. Now, so you want to implement things like CBTI, cognitive behavioural therapy of insomnia, but indeed any of the sort of manualised therapies are helpful for some people with depression. I think the word of caution is there's no one therapy that works for everybody. So let's assume that you've got a patient that you've done all the general non-drug treatments, you've done the medical investigations and you've made sure that there's nothing else complicating things. They may not be the cause, but as we know, if you've got thyroid disease, you're four times more likely to develop depression and you're going to have a sleep disturbance associated with that. And if you've got depression, you're about four times more likely to have a thyroid disease. So, you know, these are the sorts of concomitant medical things. My job as a psychiatrist working with a whole lot of sleep physicians and surgeons and um, neurologists and such is often a translational role. And so I have to kind of translate psychiatric thinking into physician terms, but we also need to translate physicians into thinking in psychiatric terms. And so that, that's important in terms of the general practice role as well. You've got to remember that you're a physician. Patients have medical issues and we need to address their medical issues this is particularly important in treating very in the patients with chronic severe depression, chronic severe psychiatric disorders. We've got to remember that we're actually doctors and we need to treat their medical conditions, which can impact both on their depression and on their sleep and on the treatment of both of those things. So we need to constantly to think about all of those things as just as background, if you like. But we imagine for a moment that you've done all of this and the patient is still not responding. My usual advice to general practitioners at this point is develop an expertise with a limited number of antidepressants. Exploit the antidepressants side effect profile to help treat 
problems like people's sleep disorders. Some antidepressants are extremely helpful in terms of the mechanisms which we can actually help people get to sleep. Most of them exploit one of three factors. You're going to exploit uh, their role as an antihistamine. You're going to exploit their role as a GABA modifying agent. And in some cases, you're going to be, in one case, you're going to be exploiting its role as a melatonergic agent. There are other factors and things that can be used to influence sleep, but they're actually three of the big um, mechanisms of actions of medication. So if you learn to use a limited palette of antidepressants and learn to use them well, then you've given them a trial of antidepressants. Now, where we start to think about referral. Before you get there, Chris, I would like as a GP for you to give us one or two examples of those that exploit the antihistamine, the GABA modifying. And of course, there's only one out there that looks at the melatonin system. But um, a couple of um, generic names would be helpful. I think if you're using most first-line therapy these days would have to be an SSRI. All of the SSRIs work, but not, not all work in the same person. Some people will respond to one SSRI rather than another SSRI, but most people who respond to one will respond to another. SSRIs are divided by different means. Some are more serotonin-specific, like escitalopram. Some are much dirtier in terms of the receptors that they hit, not in terms of any other hygiene issue, in terms of hitting multiple receptors like fluvoxamine, probably the oldest available SSRI is quite sedative. It's a standard treatment and obsessive compulsive disorder, which also presents with sleep problems. And indeed, some people can develop obsessive, obsessional symptoms about their sleep, which can be very debilitating. Fluvoxamine is the most sedative of the SSRIs. It would be a battle between paroxetine and fluoxetine to pick the most activating of those. And they're all along that spectrum. Citalopram's probably somewhat sedative in most people. Sertraline is kind of in the middle. Sertraline also has some dopaminergic activity, so it, it can be a little activating for some people. So it's basically learn to use one or two of those, and then if they have failed, the first thing I would do is not give up. If you've already established somebody on 50 milligrams of sertraline, have no hesitation in taking them to 100 milligrams if they're not responding, because that's the first thing any psychiatrist will do. If they're on Cipramil and they're tolerating Cipramil well, double the dose. This is a much better strategy than stopping it and starting a new drug, because two or three weeks down the track, they may well have get a response from that medication, and then you know you've actually treated them. If they don't have a response, then we're pretty sure that that medication is not going to work for them, and it's important then to move on and try something else. Meantime, what are you going to do about their sleep? Now, if people are having significant problems getting off to sleep, you might initially pick, and it's a severe problem for them, you might initially pick a different antidepressant. One of the useful drugs that we use a lot in a particular subclass of patients is metazapine. Metazapine has an unusual phenomenon which can make it helpful in this circumstance with someone with severe sleep initiation insomnia. At very low doses, metazapine is extremely sedative. So at a dose of the half of the smallest tablet available for metazapine, it is very sedative indeed. Ironically, the larger doses heading towards the therapeutic doses of metazapine are not nearly as sedative as the small doses. 
But the advantage of the trick in this situation is you've got somebody who hasn't been sleeping, hasn't been sleeping well, starting them on a tiny dose of metazapine can, can work to get them to sleep. And they're unlikely to have any issues in terms of dependency, which is a risk with all of the standard sleeping tablets in terms of dependency. Everybody worries that people will become addicted and will continue to use or abuse them in the future. This is particularly a function of benzodiazepines. But there is a place for using short-acting sleeping tablets in the initial treatment with an antidepressant. As long as you're monitoring, it's perfectly reasonable to use doses of Zolpidem or Zopiclone or even the old favourite Temazepam for a short period in people where you're initiating treatment for depression. Because actually, subjectively, their quality of life will improve dramatically if they're starting to get some sleep. And they're more likely to get more out of the antidepressant if you're actually getting them to sleep and they can start to have reasonable sleep, even if it's not completely normal sleep architecture that you're restoring. Getting some sleep is better than no sleep. Because the, the, that raises another question, which I think you know, just take as an aside. One of the problems you have with people with depression is that they will come to you and say, I'm not sleeping at all. Now, the clever doctors, you know, we can stick them in the sleep lab and I can show you that they are actually sleeping. So what's going on here? So two things are happening. The first thing is most people who are complaining of insomnia have a misperception problem. They think that they are awake when in fact they are asleep. The fact is that when you're in stage one sleep, you are aware of the world around you. And if somebody says, David, are you awake? You'll answer, oh, yes, I'm awake. And you may even remember answering. And you'll say, well, I wasn't asleep. But actually, that's not true. You were actually asleep. You're in stage one sleep. And so quite a lot of people who present with very difficult to treat initial insomnia, particularly patients who are depressed, have actually got very strong elements of misperception in their insomnia. And so they think that they are not sleeping when in fact they're getting light sleep. And that's an important uh, historical thing to tease out when you're treating depression because people say, oh, I didn't sleep a week last night. It's not true. They generally may sleep. And when we're talking about hardcore patients with insomnia, on average, they sleep about 40 minutes less than the average sleep length, but they misperceive a lot of the sleep. And this is even more in keeping with people with depression. They tend, of course, when you are depressed, you are not enjoying anything and you tend to have a whole um, panoply of unhelpful thoughts and you catastrophize. I'm not sleeping. Mm -hmm. I'm never going to sleep. I'm going to get sick because I'm not sleeping. I'm never going to get better. Oh, what the hell? What am I going to do with my life? Where am I going to go? Mm -hmm. The sort of things people catastrophize. And when you hear that sort of noise, not only are you hearing it, you are seeing depression operation. And I suppose that, that sort of segues into thinking about what do we do with more people with more severe depression? And the thing that you have to recognize with more severe depression is people have suicidal thoughts. Mm. Thank you for giving me so much of your time today. Thank you very much, David. So good to talk to you. Take care. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. 
It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.